Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now. What we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy. And we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts. We've got comedians, storytellers, musicians, spoken word artists and more. And they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears. The Stand Up Tragedy podcast is going to be going out every two weeks. So every two weeks you'll get a new dose of tragedy into your lives. Today's episode is Tragic Climate, which was recorded at the Hackney Attic at our Tragic Winter live show. Content note, today's episode is guest hosted by Alice Bell, who's a writer and editor. For more Alice, follow her on Twitter at Alice Bell or check out her website, alicerosebell.com. The performers are Bridget McKenzie, Jack Stilgo and Martin Ostwick. And you can follow them on Twitter at Bridget MCK, at Jack Stilgo, and at Martin Ostwick. And if you want to check out and buy Martin's music, go to thesoundoftheladies.com. This episode also contains climate change, which means really some incredibly depressing and frustrating and hard to look at facts, but told and discussed in an entertaining and engaging way. Hello, everybody. Are we recording, Harp? Excellent. Right. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. So what we're doing for this year is we're doing four different seasons of tragedy, a tragedy for all seasons. And this is the first show of 2015, so it's tragic winter. I was a bit worried that it wasn't going to be wintry enough, that I'd actually set it a little bit too late and it was going to be completely inappropriate weather-wise. But we're doing okay. Uh, I saw some snowdrops on the way here, but it's still a bit cold. So yes, tonight is about the tragedies of winter. And tonight is going to be about sort of pushing ourselves out of the darkness of the winter. So hopefully by the end of the night, we'll have shaken off all of the sadness of the of the winter and we will be able to move forward into the spring. So we've got three different themes that I thought were kind of winter related. So act one is going to be tragic fairy tales. So I thought that was appropriate because winter is the time when we tell stories in front of the fire to get us through the long nights. The second act is guest curated by Alice Bell and that is going to be tragic climate. So we're looking at the the sad and wintry aspects of climate change. And then we're finishing up with tragic death, the ultimate winter. Uh, So yes, so this is act two, uh, tragic climate. Basically, this this act came about because um, every time I sort of saw Alice Bell... Uh, around town, um, we, we sort of got to talking about how uh, climate uh, change really fits really well with stand-up tragedy, and there's not really much going on about like people talking about the real bleakness of, of climate change. And I was like, yes, 
That's what we need. Stand up tragedy. Yes, let's do that. Um, so she's, this is the first of two parts. Uh, she's going to come back for tragic summer and cover the other half of the problems of climate change. Um, but tonight is the winter ones. Um, so Alice Bell, she is the editor of How to Get to Next, and she writes articles that you can find all over the place. Uh, she's going to be your host for the next act. So put your hands together, everybody, for Alice Bell! Hello. Um, yeah, Dave and I have been talking about this for ages, partly because... Um, so I write a lot about climate change, and I do all sorts of different bits of work in climate change, and people keep saying to me, just shut up. It's really depressing. Don't talk about climate. Like, my friends started stopping asking me to parties and stuff because I might talk about climate. I got really depressed myself when I was working on it full time. Like, it, it is really depressing. And people go, you know, like, do you know, focus on the positive. Don't, like, you know, talk about the depressing stuff. Cheer up, love. Cheer up, love. I hate everyone who says cheer up, love in any context. I hope other people feel like that too. They're all arseholes, aren't they? Yes. Cheer up, yes. Cheer up, love. And there's like, so I thought we could really just embrace the shitness and the sadness and kind of look that in the eye because I think it's part of like how we don't talk about climate change, how we kind of deny climate change. We talk about climate deniers as if they're like these weird Nigel Lawson people who go and hang out with some strange Americans, but they're everywhere. They're in this room. I'm a climate denier. You're a climate denier. Dave is a total climate denier. We're all kind of climate deniers because we just don't look. We don't look it in the eye. And I think I don't, I don't, we're not going to get too dark. We're not going to get too detailed. We're not going to look every little detail of the horrificness of climate change tonight. Don't worry. <laughs> but I hope that we are going to think about it a bit, and I think that's important. But amongst all these people, um, you know, who say, you know, cheer up, love, there's lot of different types of this sort of thing that you get in climate change, and they're different types of assholes. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about these different types of assholes. So one of them is Owen Patterson. Have you heard of Owen Patterson? He used to be our uh, environment minister, um, not known for his ability to take advice from scientists troubled by the badgers, all sorts of problems did Owen Patterson. But one of the things he did was a couple of years ago, before the floods, uh, before he lost his job, uh, while he was still environment minister, um, he was at an RSPB meeting, because this is where Tories go as like a safe space to talk about climate change, as the Royal Society for Protection of the Birds. Um, and he was at one of those meetings, and he said, like, climate change is happening, yeah, because he was getting a lot of people saying, oh, you're a sceptic. And he was like, no, I'm not a sceptic, I believe climate change is happening, it's just, you know, not happening in the way that Greenpeace is saying it's happening. And it's, you know, it's not all negative. There are some positive things, you know. It'll get a bit warmer. People in, in the winter die of cold, and it'll be warmer, so they won't die. <laughs> People die of the cold for lots of reasons, partly lack of, you know, services like healthcare and good housing and social services that have been cut by Owen Patterson's government. But yeah, temperature plays a role. I mean, people also die of the heat. The 2003 uh, heat wave in Europe, people died because of that. And we think about this stuff as like far off in the future and in faraway parts of the world, but this is Europe and this is 2003. And that happened too, it can, you know, it's the heat. But also climate change isn't just about a bit of temperature rise, or it's that the temperature rise has all these other effects. So like it'll melt the ice caps and that'll cause sea level rises like we all learn at school, but it kind of loads the dice for disasters as well. So like hurricanes and tidal waves or just really long heat waves or really low, long stages of it being cold that happen anyway, they're more likely to happen as we get warmer. 
and all that sort of stuff. So it's kind of crass that Owen Patterson's, Patterson's saying, look at the advantages. You know, you say, oh, well, you get these headlines in the Daily Mail about, we'll have vineyards in the north of England. Won't that be lovely? You've got Owen Patterson, you know, sit, sitting, sipping his Cheshire champagne and Bolton Burgundy. And meanwhile, in other parts of the world, people are dying. I just think it's crass. And there are people who are going to make money out of climate change because people always make money out of crisis. Um, with, the, with the polar ice caps melting, we've got lots of ice melting, and so there's new routes for, for sea passage in the Arctic. And people are already really excited about how much money they're going to make about, out of that. They will make money. But then, you know, I, people are dying. I don't know how much of any of you have read about the stuff in Malawi at the moment. It's not really been reported in the news much because our media is so massively racist. But if you haven't read about it, do. Go home and Google Malawi devastating floods. Devastating. Like at the beginning of this year, it had been quite dry and people in Malawi were kind of hoping for rain and then it started raining and they thought brilliant and then it kept raining and it kept raining and it was raining really hard. Like half the country has just been flooded. 200 and over 230,000 people have been displaced. It stopped raining, but the UN are really worried about all the disease that this is going to cause because people have been cut off from food, from clean water and basic sanitation. And they're just expecting mass outbreaks of cholera and measles and dysentery. And meanwhile, you know, the editor of the Daily Mail and Owen Patterson are sitting with their yeah, Cheshire Champagne and Bolton Burgundy. I just think it's crass. But it's not just the right that do this. The left do it too. There's this kind of weird accelerationism thing that people have where they're like, well, maybe climate change will cause the revolution because centuries of inequality and oppression haven't done it, but maybe climate change will. <laughs> and this is like, this people actually seriously say it. It's, there's a strand of that in Naomi Klein's new book, This Changes Everything. It's one of the many reasons why I really don't like that book. I find it really distasteful. I mean, like, have your revolution if you want it. I may well join you asking for it, but don't bring in the atmosphere to it. The people of Malawi aren't some kind of weapon in your, in your revolution. It's not fair. It's not right. I, I personally find it morally repugnant. And there's also this kind of like slightly looser sort of... You've probably seen the smug cartoon of um, what if the climate change was all a hoax and we just made a lovely world you know, by accident or for no reason. And there's this idea that, like, if we act on climate change, then we're going to create this socialist utopia. And, and maybe we will, and that would be fun. But um, I don't think that's actually what's the... Con there's no reason why that is the consequence. I mean, it could be. It could be that this new world order that is provoked by the trauma of climate change leads to some kind of amazing governance that's run by, like, Kumi Naidu and Julia Thingy from the Met Office and... Uh, Xena warrior princess who's really into climate change. Like, and that would be cool, maybe, but I think it's more likely it's just that the people at power are going to shift a bit. So yeah, the oil industry will probably be a bit fucked, but the arms industry, they're going to do fine. In fact, they might do really well out of it. It's just, you know, people in power are going to shift, and meanwhile, other people are going to die. In fact, it could actually increase inequality. There's a great writer on climate change in the US called Brenton Monk, and he wrote a piece last week about, uh, for Grist saying, there ain't no gentrifier like climate change. We worry about artists, we worry about tech hubs, we worry about nice little picture-hearts cinemas creating gentrification. Wait for a storm. You know, like, a storm comes in and it washes away all the slums. And people go, let's build some nice, shiny buildings. And they build these nice, shiny buildings. And they go, that's amazing. Look at these awesome buildings. But the people who are living in the slums aren't living in those awesome buildings. The people who are living in the slums probably died in the storm. 
or maybe they've just been shifted further out into new slums or left in the streets to fend for themselves. The people in those nice, shiny buildings, well, you know the kind of nice, shiny buildings we're talking about. They're the ones with, like, a Tesco at the bottom and a lot of balconies. We've, you know, we've seen them around. The ones that are labelled affordable, but only affordable if you earn, like, six times uh, the average wage. That's the kind of new world that we could be looking at. And we have to look at this stuff in the eye. We have to think about who is taking control in this kind of new environment, a new environment, real environment that we might that we might be creating. And we have to see this, like the bad things that can happen. We have to look at Malawi to see it properly. But it, there is kind of, I think, it's part of how it, we, one of the reasons we have to look at this is not just because I think we owe it to the people in Malawi or they owe it to the people who suffered the floods in the UK or, or in America or all over the world, or to our children or to ourselves. But because it's one of the ways it will make us act. And that is maybe the good news, if you know you really need a cheer up, love, good news on it. Um, we can act. Like, we've already fucked up quite a lot of the planet. Like, climate change is already happening. And one of the things about annoying things about the way it works is that uh, it's, there's sort of a time delay. So we've already put shit up in the atmosphere, which is going to cause all sorts of problems in the future. And there's not much we can do about that unless Jack's going to tell us about some magic geoengineering trick and tell us to do that. Um, I mean, there's, there's not... We're that, you know, we're pretty much fixed on some shit. But there's all sorts of other bits of the world there to save. There's loads and loads and loads of the world that we don't have to fuck up. We just need to act on it. That's one of the, the, you know, the good things, maybe, that I can say about climate change. And, and what can we do? Well, you could recycle more, you could turn the lights out, you could stop buying so much shit, those horrible things that people say. You should stop eating meat. I mean, you shouldn't eat meat anyway because that's fucking barbaric, but, like, you know, sorry, I think it is. Uh, but, um, you know, you could... Uh, you, you should, that would really cut your carbon footprint. But it's little things like... Well, individual action like that is limited. Really what we need to do is, is change things at a level of... Well, look, there's lots of things like fossil fuel subsidies and policies and building infrastructure that we can't as individuals act on, which is why one of the things you should do is just, if you haven't already, register to vote and tell everyone else you know to register to vote and talk about climate change as part of that. Like, I don't expect you to vote because of just climate change and that won't govern... I mean, there's going to be housing and education and healthcare and whether you just want to slap them in the face that's going to be involved in all the reasons why you vote. But climate change should be up there. And just talk about it with your friends and family and so it becomes a normal thing that we're not denying, we're not ignoring, we're not looking at. Just become something. And you could go along to the march next week if you want to. And don't go, like, necessarily going and, like... Stand. I mean, you can go there and shout and say, I want to be heard, climate change, way, and expect someone to listen, and maybe they will. But just go along, because these marches of these things, they're not just, like, to be seen, because I don't think people really pay much attention. It's also just as a social event where you can go and talk and you can meet people and just spend a couple of hours, even if you don't go on the march, maybe stay at home and just spend some time learning about climate change and thinking about it and, and letting it be part of something that you do. And we stop like hiding from it. We stop being a denialist. And if someone says, cheer up, love, it's not that bad, you can tell him from me to fuck off. <laughs> I promise that the rest of this won't be so much kind of ranty political stuff. I just thought I'd start with that. Uh, we've got some music now, and we have Bridget McKenzie, who I, is one of these people who I keep bumping into in so many different ways, because she does so many interesting things. Um, she's somebody who works in education and in culture, but today she's here as a writer and a singer, and she's going to give us some words and some music. So put your hands together for Bridget McKenzie. <laughs> 
okay. I have to have my words because I may have a Natalie Bennett moment. I'm not sure I can see them though. Right. This is going to be one and a half songs and a bit of chat. I was going to rant, but you've already ranted. <laughs> and I was going to say what you were going to say. Anyway, there'll be an anecdote. <laughs> Pushing through the market square So many mothers sighing News had just come over We had five years left to cry in News guy wept and told us Earth was really dying Cried so much his face was wet Then I knew he was not lying yeah, That's just a little bit of a song. Does anyone know that song? Familiar? Yeah. Yeah. David Bowie, Five Years. So um, uh, I'm older than I look. I was a David Bowie fan. Um, that song... Um, I thought that was just a fantasy. Five years left to live in, what a ridiculous idea. But actually, uh, it's kind of coming true. I mean, Earth is really dying, isn't it? I mean, you know. Um, well, at least the thriving biosphere that we know and love is really dying. Um, and projections are that we're um, heading for something that you might call the Thermageddon, which is the situation when the planet is six degrees warmer in which um, vertebrates can't really live. And that might actually come in less than 100 years. So, um, and have you heard about this uh, campaign called 100 Months? 100 Months? The New Economics Foundation, you might have seen sometimes on social media, something that says, we've got 30 months left to take climate action. We're currently on 20 months. I'm not actually sure that's even accurate. I think probably the you know, 100 months passed in 2006. Um, so, and I think, you know, there's quite a lot of proof that that might be true. For example, you know, we've lost um, more than half of Arctic sea ice since Elvis died. And I mentioned Elvis because um, Elvis played a little role in me becoming an environmentalist. Um, <laughs> uh, because... He died just at the moment I was standing in Western Canada on a family holiday. My family live in Canada. And, um, and I was looking at a, a clear felled mountainside. And I was feeling like crying. And I didn't know why. It was just like I couldn't bear to look at this devastated mountainside. And my auntie just came out of her trailer and she went, Elvis is dead, Elvis is dead. And all of the adults around just flocked together and started crying. It was amazing. And I was thinking, but look at the mountain. There's no trees on it. And, um, and at that moment, I thought, have adults really got their priorities sorted out? Um, so, and that was uh, nearly 40 years ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> So since then, I've been quite committed to the cause of um, deforest deforestation as a big one and wildlife conservation. And it's been a struggle. You know, I've been really... I've found it sometimes... I often can't sleep. I get very upset. You know, I grieve a lot at 
the, the prospect of the fact that humans are causing the sixth mass extinction, um, that the animals are, are going extinct at 10,000 times the, the rate of the, the, the background rate. So um, um, I, what, what I feel is that, is that we have a, a culture of constructive denial. It's what you were saying. It's, um, it's not really denial, it's constructive denial. You know, a lot of us accept the science of climate change, but we can't talk about it. We can't accept the fear and the sadness. And I feel that if we repress the fear and the sadness, if we don't talk about it, then we also repress the debate about, what the, about the solutions, about the, the reasons for hope. Um, so I am, a, I suppose, a dark optimist. Um, um, Chris Rapley, apparently, is a dark optimist as well. Um, but um, I think probably the things I feel optimistic about are things like rewilding, um, the law against um, ecocide, the campaign to have a law against ecocide, things that are really about um, eco bringing back an ecological way of knowing. Anyway, I'm going to finish on, an, on another song. That's, um, it's a song, I wrote the lyrics, but it's pretty much a pastiche of a Leonard Cohen song. Um, I wrote it today, so that's why I need my notes. Okay. <laughs> so this is really depressing. I mean, this song is just basically saying there's no hope. I kind of can't, I can't accept the idea that there is no hope. I swing from one to the other. But you have to express it in a song. And, and I think we should let other people express their fears. <clears throat> All hope is gone, no trust in one solution to this mess. I see a move and then it's gone, an end game in the chest. I'm thinking how do we survive? this catastrophic state you carry on as if you'll live a hundred years straight I want to talk to say it's shit I see a future that's bleak you say, get a grip, don't let it slip, that you're a doomer freak. And sometimes when the night is long, wretched thinking late, of all the ways that we can live a hundred years, Confined to songs to express my fear At the rising of the seas I see there are no options left Against stupidity I made it here to tell to you They must let us say We may not make
make it through a hundred years straight. Sorry. very much. I'll just, I just want to say I've never really stood up behind a microphone and sung apart from in my local pub with my friends, so that was a bit scary. It was all right. Thank you, Bridget McKenzie. Give her another round of applause. Next up, we have uh, Jack Stilgo, Dr. Jack Stilgo. We have an actual expert for you. Uh, I've known Jack for over a decade, which makes me feel very old. Um, he once gave me a D for an essay that I wrote on GM crops, which I'm not bitter about at all, that I still remember that over a decade on. Um, he's now a, a worldwide recognised expert on geoengineering, um, and he's, he's going to tell us a bit about... He spent a lot of years thinking about geoengineering. Um, he's going to tell you a bit about it now, and he's got PowerPoint because he's a lecturer. So, can I have a big round of applause for Jack Stilgo? I'll just take this one. Um, so, uh, thank you, everybody. So, yes, um, as, as Alice gloriously uh, announced, I'm no entertainer, right? I'm a, I'm a sociologist, um, which means that what I have to say is uh, undoubtedly boring, but may... I, I suspect, be important, or at least come to be important in the years to come as this tragedy uh, is, is recognised to be, to be worse and worse. And one of the questions that we might have to ask is about whether there is a, a technology that might help us out. And I would say, if anybody uh, hints that there might be, just say, oh, please, God, no. That's going to be uh, my message. So this... This is an anti-technology talk. It's a sort of... Um, I've decided that, that I will sort of bill it as, a, as an anti-TED talk, right? This is, this is about one of the worst ideas that science has ever come up with. Um, and the story that I want to tell starts a long time ago with a volcano. It starts um, uh, almost exactly 200 years ago, in fact. So this is April 1815, uh, one of the smaller islands of Indonesia blows its top. This is uh, Mount Tambora. And Mount Tambora erupted. It was the biggest eruption of modern times. At the time, it was the biggest eruption for a thousand years, and it hasn't been beaten uh, since. And was in itself a, a tragedy. You know, it, it killed thousands of people uh, who were in the, in the surrounding area. But, but worse was to come, because what happened with Mount Tambora is that a vast amount of dirt and dust and chemicals got thrown way up into the atmosphere, right to the top of the atmosphere, on the edge of space. And what happened is that, is that uh, this dust uh, circulated around the Earth. It got caught up in the jet streams and circled around the Earth, forming a sort of film, a haze around the, around the world. Um, so as far away as... Uh, as Europe and America, people started seeing extremely strange things happening. Harvests started to fail, right? There were famines. There were riots because of it. Um, painters of the time began to notice some strange things, like the fact that the sunset started becoming absurdly red. This is, this is 
Turner, who, uh, who along with Constable and, and various others, started to get through huge quantities of red paint, right? Whoever was selling red paint at the time would have done extremely nicely because of uh, this volcanic eruption. Um, meanwhile, on the shores of Lake Geneva, in this rather grand house, four friends uh, gathered together for a holiday. Uh, their names were Mary, George, Percy and John. And they were hoping to have a nice summer holiday. So this is the year afterwards, 1816. But 1816 was known as the year without a summer. It was horrible, right? The weather was, was disastrous, which meant that these friends had to stay inside all the time. Some of you are probably guessing where this story is going. These friends, looking around for entertainment, uh, decided to uh, dare each other to write ghost stories. And one of the... Uh, one of the uh, Teenagers, as she was at the time, Mary at the time, wrote a story that would go on to become... Anybody? Thank you very much. Good. A very well-educated audience. That's like my, uh, my litmus test for my, for my uh, audience. Yeah, of course, Frankenstein. Um, and Frankenstein... So Frankenstein has become our sort of... Our parable, our, our cautionary tale for, uh, for technology out of control. And I think it tells us a lot that is useful as we start to uh, explore some other reasons why scientists now are starting to get extremely interested in that volcano again. Some of these scientists, you know, they're not, they're not Dr. Frankenstein. Some of these people are well-meaning scientists who are utterly terrified about climate change, right? They are the, are the ones that are closest to knowing about what is likely to happen over the next uh, decades and, and, and centuries. And they are worried and they are looking around for other options, right? One of them uh, that has uh, come to prominence quite recently, that's, that's become the thing that I've become unhealthily obsessed with, is this idea of geoengineering, right? Which is to use one of the methods suggested for geoengineering. There's a sort of scientific uh, insight is to say, well, if a stupid volcano can chuck up a pretty small amount of dirt, actually, into the atmosphere and, use, and cool the climate, right, over a period of a few years, then surely, surely the combined intellectual and technological might of rich countries could do the same job and do it a bit better, right? Surely we could cool the climate ourselves by just putting in place some sort of artificial volcano. And so the scientists are getting excited about how you might do this, right? Some of them think all you need to do is fly some planes in, uh, you know, as high as planes can go and squirt out some, some stuff out of their engines that would create this sort of dust. Or maybe you would uh, put it up there using massive balloons. Or maybe you'd fire missiles into the sky, right? Anything to get dust up into the atmosphere and start reflecting away some of this sunlight, doing the job that the volcano managed to do so successfully. But... Obviously, when the volcano did the job, it led to famines and riots around the world and the creation of pretty paintings and, and, and beautiful novels. Um, the scientists uh, do jobs like this, right? So this is, if you have a massive computer model of the climate, this is one of the things that you can do to it. You can say, okay, let's pretend that there is a, suddenly a, a massive amount of dust in on the edge of uh, the atmosphere, 
right? What does that do to our weather? And you can run these models and, and say, well, actually what it tells you is that suddenly it stops raining in all sorts of places that you would want it to rain, right? Places that you grow food. Or it starts raining a lot in places where you really don't want it to start raining. Um, so, who thinks geoengineering is a good idea? In theory, I have to say I've slightly revealed my hand. I, 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 so, who thinks geoengineering is a bad idea? In theory, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. And who doesn't know? Right. And I think that's the point. Right? Is that is that the scientists can tell us some things about whether this sort of business uh, might do certain things, but the point is that we are going to be stuck almost inevitably in a sort of planetary experiment, um, which is no, no great insight, um, except that we need to take seriously the fact that, that science won't have all the answers to this. So it would be a massive leap into the unknown, which is why, uh, why some people are campaigning strongly against geoengineering, even though they're the people who may be uh, most concerned about the effects of climate change, right? So they are both extremely concerned about the problem and the, uh, the solution here. I don't have the answer, God no. I mean, other than that we should be extremely careful before we start doing all of these things. And all I would say is that um, I am afraid I have absolutely no upbeat message at all, other than that I would hope that uh, scientists are all busy reading their copies of Frankenstein right about now and learning some of the lessons about what happens when you uh, not create monsters because I think the issue with Frankenstein is not that the monster was created evil, but that he wasn't looked after, right? The monster became evil because the scientists stopped taking responsibility for him. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Jack Stilgo. Give him another round of applause as he sits down. And finally, we have a bit more music. Um, we have uh, someone who is walking towards the stage, so I'm going to introduce him as he does that. We have another doctor from UCL, Dr. Martin Zoltz-Olstwick, but he's not here to talk to you about his physics, thank goodness, because that would be very boring. He's here uh, with his musician's hat on, or his musician's beard on, and his guitar. Um, you can also find more of his musical work if you Google Sound of the Ladies. Um, it's probably fair to say he's not obsessed with climate change, which is maybe a good thing. Um, but he has some friends that are, annoyingly, and so, you know, he start, it started to make its way into his music. All right, big round of applause for Martin Zoltz-Olswick. Thank you. So, um, I, really, um, I really like oil, because I think it's tremendously useful. I think we can do all sorts of things with it, and... And I, uh, I, so I, 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 th I assume that the oil that we burn, that bit of oil that we burn, is a different bit of the oil that you can do useful stuff with and make paints and plastics and things. And, uh, and I found out that's not true, actually. A lot of the, the oil that we burn is pretty useful. And I was thinking about how, how silly it is that we, we take something that has this sort of innate complexity and, and real value to human beings and we just sort of send it up in smoke. So I, I try to think of things that will be equivalently stupid. And the first thing I came up with... and and kind of what the song is about, I guess, is, is like taking all of the microchips that we, we have and, and smashing them up to make a beach. So, <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's other stupid things we can do, and I, I guess this song is trying to detail a few of those. So. 
We took all the computers from our homes and offices And stamped down on them angrily Until their circuits buckled Warped and split Like a Jacob's cracker Their brains crumbled in our hands So we took all of those microchips And we smashed them up to make a load of sand We put it all together To make the silver sand dunes in the Thames Estuary From Parliament to Essex It's the only thing that's holding back the sea You can go there sunbathing People do, they come for miles around You can't quite see the ocean, but you can hear the waves as they're crashing down. We got all of the aspirin and we ground it down to make fake silver linings for artificial clouds. To spruce up gala openings of large sporting events Where the thousands congregate to shout inside a tent And cry They cry and when it rains Nobody gets headaches for a while So sports are very popular Because everyone has headaches all of the time And all the fiber optics Were melted down to make a giant Martini glass We built a paper forest With books for leaves and newspapers for grass And people walk among the inky leaves That once upon a time were words And occasionally these bookworms Will be carried off by overzealous birds That and constant headaches Are the only natural hazards there will be city of the future where you're no more than a mile from the beach from the beach from the beach Thank you, Martin Ostwick.
Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Dave, for inviting me. And thank you all for listening. And remember, embrace the tragedy of climate change. It's the only way we're going to do anything about it. And if someone says, cheer up, love, tell them to fuck off. Follow the tragedy at Stand Up for Tragedy on Twitter. Make friends with the tragedy by friending us on Facebook or if you don't want to be our friend, you can like us on Facebook as well. The podcasts are going out every two weeks at the moment and they are available from iTunes, the Stitcher Smart Radio app and any other place that podcasts go to hang out on the internet. There's a hell of a... And we've got a big back catalogue, so there's loads more tragedy to listen through. We particularly recommend the Selected Tragedy episodes, which we put together during the last break we had from live shows. Our next stand-up tragedy is Tragic Spring, and that is happening at the Hackney Attic on the 25th of April. We've got an amazing lineup. It's Tragic Beginnings, Tragic bodies guest hosted by matilda gregory and tragic sex and i'm really excited to hear what those performers are going to do and how that show is going to flow come and join us it's five pounds in advance seven pounds on the door you can find out about that and all other things stand up tragedy at www.standuptragedy.co.uk and if you'd like to write some tragedy for us and submit that to be displayed on our blog, then you can find out the details on the website of how to go about doing it. And for now, the tragedy is... This podcast has been produced by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over George Brufton